Where does life come from? Where does life come from? It's an important question. As Christians, we believe that life comes from God. Uh, we believe that God is the author of life, and that's why Christians from all over the country last Sunday gathered in Washington, D.C., in order to participate in the 2024 March for Life. They gathered because they wanted to proclaim that life is precious, uh, even the smallest life, even the youngest life. Whether that child is in the womb or out of the womb, every child is valuable. And they gathered because they wanted to proclaim that life is worth defending. You do know we live in an age where a culture of death is ascendant. And people are celebrating death and the end of life as a good thing. Well, they gathered because they wanted to proclaim that that's not true. You know, they gathered, most especially Christians gathered, because they wanted to proclaim that God is the author of life, that he owns it, that he's the source of it. And so it has value. Life comes from God. If you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder, though, how you would answer that question. Where would you say life comes from? You know, not, not every answer to that question is correct. If you were to ask the ancient Egyptians in Moses' day where life came from, they would have looked at you and they would have constantly said or confidently said that life comes from the Nile. You see, the Nile was vastly important to them. Every year, the Nile would overflow, and when it overflowed, and then finally the waters receded, it would leave behind kind of a rich layer of soil, and that soil would be used to grow all of the abundant crops of Egypt. And so, through the Nile, Egypt was made fruitful and wealthy and secure. And that's why the people of Egypt, that's why they worship the Nile. They worship the Nile in the form of the god Happy. Happy is pictured as a bearded man, his breast, he has a pregnant stomach, and he represents fertility. He represents the fruitfulness of the Nile. And the Egyptians believed that he was the one who gave them life. So every year during their annual celebration, they would praise their God, Happy, this way. They'd say, Hail to your countenance, Happy, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt, who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who creates every sort of his good things who is enduring of customs, who returns at his due season, who fills upper and lower Egypt. Everything that has come into being is through his power. There is no district of living men without him. Right, you see, the Egyptians of Moses' day were certain that happy was the source of life. They looked to him for life. But as we're going to see as we study the Bible this morning, the Egyptians were wrong. Ultimately, the Nile, the god happy, was not the source of life. He had no power to give life. And we know that because in a day, really in a moment, God turns the waters of the Nile into blood, demonstrating ultimately that the Nile has no power in and of itself to give life. But no, instead, God is sovereign, and God demonstrates his sovereignty by transforming this river that had given life and fertility really into a river of death, demonstrating the Egyptians were foolish to look to the Nile for life. Now, this is an important passage of scriptures. We look at verse 14 to 25 together this morning. It's important because it demonstrates the power of God. You must remember, uh, either these things happened, that God is who he is, who the Bible says he is, and he did these things, or we're just all wasting time here this morning. This is a miracle of God. It's a mighty miracle of God. It displays the power of God. More than that, though, I think in a very helpful way, it reminds us that we must look to God for life because if we are looking anywhere else, we will be disappointed. We will be disappointed by that. My prayer as we study this passage together is that God will teach us to look for life in Him alone. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we were looking at the book of Exodus. We looked at chapter 6, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 13. And there we saw Moses confront Pharaoh. Uh, if you've been with us from the beginning, you've seen a, a really a great transformation happen in Moses' life, where he goes from being kind of a reluctant, hesitant prophet, doubting God, to being a faith-filled and obedient prophet. And that's what he does. He now, and really you'll see it throughout the rest of this book, he obeys God uh, his faith in God is strong, and he does precisely what God tells him to do, which is what faith looks like in action. Well, he had done that. He had gone to Pharaoh. He had confronted Pharaoh. He demanded that Pharaoh would let the people of Israel go. He had even been used by God to perform a, a mighty miracle so that his staff became a serpent. Pharaoh should have responded. Pharaoh should have repented. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. We're going to see that theme over and over and over, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, which really in some ways is proto prototypical for the, the heart of all people outside of Christ, whose hearts are hard towards God. When Egypt sorcerers, though, were able to turn their staffs into serpents, Pharaoh's heart was hard. He didn't listen to Moses. He did not let the people of Israel go. But of course, we're not surprised by that. We're not surprised by that because we've known from the beginning that this is what would happen. God told Moses that this is what would occur. When he met with Moses in the burning bush, he said this in chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. He said, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. Uh, so God's had a plan from the beginning. And the plan is that Pharaoh's hardness of heart is not going to thwart his plan. In fact, it's going to be a part of his plan. And what God is going to do is demonstrate his sovereignty over Pharaoh by striking Pharaoh and Egypt with his miracles, with his plagues. We know them as the ten plagues. And ultimately, Pharaoh, Pharaoh would push the people of Israel out because of what had occurred. And what's the point? Why is God doing this? Why is he doing this? We saw that last week when we looked at chapter 7 and verse 5. So you've got your copy of God's Word. Look there, chapter 7, verse 5. Here's where God says why he's doing what he's doing in Pharaoh's life and in the life of the Egyptians. He says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the, Israel, the Israelites from among them. Do you see that? They will know that I am the Lord. You see, God is about His glory, and He's about being worshipped. He's going to strike the Egyptians with plagues so that He would be glorified. And once they had suffered from those ten plagues, they would know in no uncertain terms that God, Yahweh, and not Pharaoh was Lord. And God would be glorified for what He had done. Now, from chapter 7, verse 14, all the way to chapter 12, verse 42, we're going to see God really rain down judgment on the nation of Egypt. Ten plagues are going to affect every area of the life of the Egyptians. Commentators note that the, the first nine plagues, where they really come in three sets of three, and there's a rhythm to them. So the first two plagues in each set, they're announced beforehand to Pharaoh, but then the third plague of that set, it, is, it comes unannounced. It occurs without warning. And what happens, as we will see, is that one by one, the plagues devastate the life of Egypt, from its water to its crops, from its land to its sky. No aspect of the life of this nation is left untouched. And all of these plagues are terrible. But then when we get to the 10th plague, we're going to see that as terrible as those nine plagues were, there were ultimately nothing in comparison with the 10th plague. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn sons of every family in Egypt. 
And when that occurs, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt will literally beg the Israelites to leave. As we study these plagues, though, I want us to understand that what we're seeing here is more than a conflict between Yahweh, the Lord, and a man, Pharaoh. Ultimately, what God is doing in this narrative, what he's doing in in this history of what he's done, is he is raining down judgment on the gods of Egypt. Uh, This is crafted intentionally. These miraculous plagues are direct judgment against the gods, and we understand them to be false gods. We understand them to be demonically empowered gods. But he is specifically raining down judgment on them for a purpose. Now, let me read about this from Numbers chapter 33, verses 3 and 4, where speaking of the Israelites, Moses says this, They traveled from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the month. On the day after the Passover, the Israelites went out defiantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were burying every firstborn male the Lord had struck down among them. Listen, for the Lord had executed judgment against their gods. And one by one, that's what will happen. The gods of Egypt will be judged as Yahweh pours out his judgment on the land of Egypt. Happy, the god of the Nile. Heket, the frog-headed goddess of birth. Set, the god of the storms, Ra, the sun god, Hathor, the cow-headed goddess, Sekhmet, the goddess with power over disease, Newt, the sky goddess, Osiris, the god of crops and fertility, Isis, the protector of children. All of these gods and others will be judged as God one by one rains down these plagues upon this nation and really ultimately demonstrates the powerlessness of these idols. Uh, demonstrates that they're unworthy of worship, that they're powerless to save, because after all, they're just worthless lies. This morning, we're looking at verses 14 to 25. We're going to look at the first plague, God's judgment against the Nile. If you're taking notes, we'll study this passage using two points. Two points from Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. First, we're going to see a river of blood. We'll see that, verses 14 to 21. And then we're going to see a heart of stone. We'll see that when we look at verses 22 to 25. Let's look at that first point then, a river of blood. Uh, As we just read this section, now we know last week as we were looking, Moses' staff became a serpent. We know that Pharaoh refused to go. Now in these verses which we've just read, particularly looking at verse 14 and 15, God comes to Moses again and commands him to once again go and approach Pharaoh and to confront Pharaoh and notice where Moses is supposed to confront Pharaoh. Uh, He's supposed to confront Pharaoh when Pharaoh goes out to the Nile. Now, why is he confronting Pharaoh by the Nile? Well, we've already talked about the way that the Egyptians viewed the Nile as the very source of their existence. And so God is going to begin to rain down his judgment on this land by really striking at the very heart of the idolatry of this people. This is really at the very heart of their civilization. And the plague that God is going to send is a severe one. Uh, So Moses is to go to Pharaoh, and he is to remind Pharaoh that the the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, had commanded him to let the people of of Israel go and to worship the Lord in the wilderness. Uh, So once again, that word worship, it tells us what the Lord's doing. What's he after? He's after worship. He's after praise. He's after glory. He wants to be glorified as his people worship him. But here's here's the problem. Pharaoh was standing in the way of God receiving the worship that was due to him. And that was bad news for Pharaoh. And it was bad news for all of Egypt. We see how bad in verses 17 to 18, where the Lord tells Moses what's going to happen. Uh, He's going to strike the Nile. And when the Nile is, is struck, it's going to turn to blood. The fish are going to die. 
The river will stink. The Egyptians will be unable to uh, drink water from it. In verse 19, you see that Moses commands Aaron to do this. He puts his staff out over not only the Nile, but all the waters of Egypt, uh, even over the waters in the stone containers and the wooden containers so that they would become blood. And in verse 20 and 21, you see that that's what happens. Read it there. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad, the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. And with the striking of the Nile, God's judgment against the people of Egypt has begun. But before we move on, let me just answer one possible objection. Are we really supposed to believe that on a certain day, at a certain moment, the Lord struck the Nile so that it turned from water into blood? Now, liberal commentators have always struggled with this. Uh, They have a hard time believing this. So they come up with naturalistic causes to explain the phenomenon of a red Nile. Some say that the river didn't actually turn into blood, but it only resembled blood because red soil from upper Egypt washed suddenly into the Nile Delta and it came downstream and it turned the river red. Others have suggested that there was an algae bloom, a red algae bloom that occurred, and so the waters were turned red. But of course, there are some serious problems with these naturalistic explanations for what the passage is clearly telling us happened. For one thing, it's hard to understand how Pharaoh and the Egyptians are supposed to be very impressed by these kind of naturalistic miracles. Uh, So what if the river just happened to turn red with mud when Aaron moved his staff across it? Uh, The river turned red with mud before, it would turn red with mud again. Why would we expect Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to be moved by a pathetic miracle, quote-unquote, like that? There's a deeper problem, though, with these naturalistic explanations. It's not what the passage says. The passage doesn't say the Nile turned red like blood. Uh, It doesn't say that it merely resembled blood. We're either going to treat the text with respect or we're not going to do that. Verse 20 says very clearly, the water in the Nile became blood. And that matters because only if the water in the Nile became blood can you explain all the details of this narrative, of this story. Only that explains why all the fish in the Nile died. And only that explains why all of the water in Egypt, not just in the Nile, but all of the other waters in the containers even, why also they turned into blood. Friends, what happened was a mighty miracle. It was a miracle of God that took place in space and time history like this. And and friend, you have to understand, if there's a God, uh, he's able to interact with his creation and he's able to do precisely these kind of miracles if he wants to do so. And that's what he was doing. And he was demonstrating very clearly to the Egyptians that the Nile was not the source of life. He was demonstrating very clearly to them that he was sovereign over the Nile. So what should we take away from these verses? Let me give you two kind of brief observations, two takeaways from these verses. First, I want us to notice that God graciously gives warnings before judgment falls. God graciously gives warnings before judgment falls. So uh, with turning the water of the Nile into blood, judgment began to fall. But we need to consider, and, and we will see that as we go through this, that the first nine plagues, as severe as they are, they're really nothing in comparison with the 10th plague. So we're moving somewhere. And, and so these first, these first plagues, well, they actually are judgments, but, but they're more than judgments. They're actually warnings. Uh, you see, at any time, Pharaoh could have been impacted by the plague and he could have turned away from it. 
Uh, One commentator put it this way. He said God's first visitations were like warning shots against the bows of the Egyptian ship. Uh, Pharaoh could have repented at any time. He could have turned away at any time. And if he had done so, his firstborn son, who would be the next Pharaoh, who would be the, the king of Egypt, well, he would have never died. And friends, this is how God works. Our God is a gracious God who gives warning before judgment falls. So think about what we see in the Bible. Uh, Think about the story of Noah. How long did the ancients have to consider Noah's warnings? As Noah, a preacher of righteousness, warned them about a coming flood. They had more than a hundred years. Repeatedly, the Old Testament prophets are sent to the people of Judah, warning them that because of their idolatry, the city of Jerusalem is going to be sacked and utterly destroyed. And God gave them generations to turn away from their idolatry before that destruction ultimately did come in 586 B.C. God graciously gives warnings before his judgments. Now consider, uh, please listen, consider that repeatedly throughout the Bible, we are warned of hell. We're warned of final judgment. We're we're warned of a reality that's so terrible, it's difficult to even begin to grasp. The, The idea that there's this place called hell where people will be separated from anything that is good and under God's just wrath. And many people don't believe in it. They think it's just a way that preachers scare people in order to get them to do what they want. The problem with that, of course, is that the Lord Jesus, the only one who said that he was God and said he was going to die and said he was going to rise from the dead and then did all of those things, proving that he was God, he spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. This one. So listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Luke 12, verse 4 and 5, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. But after that, have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who's he referring to? He's referring to God. And he says, fear him. Why? Because hell is a real place. And the Bible has repeatedly warned us about it. It's a place of punishment. It's a place of despair. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of utter darkness. But because God is gracious, because God is merciful, he has warned over and over and over and over. So here's my question. Friend, have you listened to his warning? (coughs) Have you really thought about it? More than just a moment. More than just, nah, not interested in that. Have you really thought about it? It's the most important question you'll ever have to answer because, and this is the second observation, God's judgment is severe. We see that. There's no way we can whitewash that. Yes, the first plague of turning the Nile to blood was a warning, but we we have to understand it was also a judgment. And consider the severity of it. The blood was thick and disgusting, and it was everywhere. More than that, all the fish died, which meant one of the major food sources for the Egyptian is completely wiped away in a moment. More than that, in verse 25, we'll see in a moment that there was no water left really in Egypt. And so, so the people don't have water. And the problem with that, of course, is that if you don't have water, you, you cannot long survive. Through God's judgment, the Nile, which was a source of life, had become a source of death. The plague was devastating. 
And we're going to see as we look through the other plagues, the other nine plagues that come, that, that they're also severe. And the tenth is going to be most severe of all. It's going to be worst of all. But now, consider again that the Bible warns us about a coming day of judgment that is going to be far worse than all of the ten plagues of Egypt combined. And it describes that day on, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Here's this day of judgment with the God who's created you standing there, you standing before him with no place to hide. This is what it's going to be like. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And listen, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So I know there's a baby crying. I know that it's easy to hear words like that and think, oh, that's just a religious man saying religious things and he's just hellfire and brimstone. I know it's easy to just kind of let these things pass you by, but I want you because I love you to consider the warning that's being given. I want you to let it rest on your hearts and think about what's being said. Consider how severe the judgment will be against those who reject Jesus. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life will be thrown into a lake of fire. Friends, a river of blood is nothing compared to a lake of fire. And and that's what the Bible teaches. And if if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, if I'm not just wasting my life, if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, if this book is trustworthy, I must tell you this. Because, because I love you. It's the most loving thing I can do is tell you the truth of what the Bible says. Why? So that you can be prepared. So that you don't go there. Uh, so that you can receive rescue. And that's where this really hard thing becomes amazingly good news because this God who has severe judgments is also a God of mercy. It's an amazing reality of the gospel that God who's a God of judgment is also the very same God who provides mercy to all who will put their trust in Jesus. And that's the good news of Christianity. You have to understand, this is not a religion of how can I be a nice person for God and read my Bible and pray. It's not that. It is a religion of rescue. The Bible says at the very beginning, we were all created by God to know Him, to love Him, and to serve Him. But our first parents sinned against God. They rebelled against Him. They thought most especially that it would be better to live for themselves than to live for God. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to pursue their own happiness. They wanted to be like God on their own. They sinned, they rebelled, they fell into sin. We sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature, so that what feels most natural to us from our earliest moments is centering our lives on ourselves and pursuing what we want to do. We see, we just follow suit. We do what we want to do. And that's the nature of sin. Sin says this, God will not be God in my life. I will be God in my life. God will not tell me what to do. I will do what I want to do. That's the nature of sin. That's what feels natural. And that's what separates us from God. And remember, the Nile is not the source of life. Who's the source of life? God is the source of life. 
And our sin separates us from this source of life. And left to ourselves, there's no way for us to get back because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then this is where the gospel becomes such good news. God, this God who sends severe judgments is the God who sends a merciful Savior, Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He lives a perfect life. He comes into this world to live a perfect life. Why? Friends, because you and I have failed to live that perfect life that we need. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He always did for others what what he would want them to do for him. And then he set his face towards Jerusalem because his mission ultimately was to die as a sacrifice and to bear in himself the wrath of God against the sins of sinners and to die under the weight of that wrath. But then listen, to rise from the dead. And he did that. That's why Jesus is a big deal. That's why he's worth listening to. That's why the Bible means something because he actually rose from the dead. And now this, this offer is given to you. If you will today, turn from your sin, turn from that principle of I want to do what I want to do, and instead confess your sins to God and cry out for his mercy in Christ, you'll receive it. Uh, You will be not rejected by God, you'll be welcomed by God. All of your sin, past, present, and future, will be utterly wiped away. Uh, You will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you, he will see Jesus's life, Jesus's success covering all of your failures. You'll be shielded. Listen, you'll be shielded from the judgment of God. Why? Because Jesus already suffered the judgment for you. No, friend, trust in Christ today. This is not something to wait on. This is not something to say, yeah, I'll get serious about religion someday in the future. You don't know that you have a future. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to cry out for mercy and receive mercy in Christ. And we pray that you will do that today. You must understand as a church, we don't have anything else to offer you but that message. That's all we've got. That's it. If you want to know what we've got, that's what we've got. And there's no better message. So receive it. Put your trust in Christ today and be saved. Well, looking at verse 14 to 21 of chapter 7, we see the Lord transform the Nile from a river of life to a river of blood. Now, how is Pharaoh going to respond? Well, we're going to see in verse 22 to 25, we're going to see a heart of stone. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Last time we saw that the magicians, the sorcerers of Egypt, were able to perform the same miracle that Moses did when he turned his staff into a serpent. Now, remarkably, again in verse 22, they're able again by Satan's power to perform the same miracle. They can duplicate the miracle here. They turn water to blood. Where did they get the water? Well, we're not entirely sure. But if you look at verse 24, it seems very likely that there was still some water underground. So it's very likely that they got the water from that source. At any rate, they duplicated the miracle And that's when we see Pharaoh's heart does what it does. Because it's hard, it becomes hard again. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Instead, in verse 23, we see Pharaoh simply turned around and went into his house. He didn't even take this to heart. It was a light thing to him. He was unconcerned. He should have been amazed. It's a pretty amazing thing. He should have repented. But his heart was hard. 
And what about the rest of the Egyptians? Well, the rest of the Egyptians weren't quite as lucky as Pharaoh, were they? They didn't have a great house to go into. Uh, They didn't have servants who would meet their every need. No, in verse 24, we see that they're forced to dig and dig along the Nile looking for water that's still underground there. And when you look at verse 25, it seems that for up to seven days, it took seven full days perhaps before the blood of the Nile was completely washed away as more water came into the delta. Now let me make two observations from this before we conclude this morning. Observation number one, Satan has real power, but it's limited power. We spoke about this last time, but we see it very clearly again in verse 22. And I think it brings out some details that we need to see. Notice that Pharaoh's magicians are able to turn the water into blood. They're able to to do this. How? By their occult practices. Once again, Satan has real power. We need to know that. In other words, the power of Satan was at work through these magicians to form an actual miracle. And if we stop there, we can be amazed at the power of Satan. That would be completely the wrong lesson to take away from this account. Yes, Satan has real power, but it is a limited power. Even though it's far more than you or I have, it's nothing compared to the power of God. How do we see that? Well, do you notice that the magicians are unable to undo God's miracle? Wouldn't it have made sense for them to wave the staff across the Nile and heal it and make it water again? No, they're not, they're not able in any way to change what God had done, to undo the miracle that God had done. Really, all they could do was be empowered by Satan to make the problem worse. What good does it do anyone to turn water into blood? Uh, Do the Egyptians need more blood? No, but just notice, Satan isn't very creative. All Satan has ever been able to do is copy and distort what God has already done. And that's what he does here. And even what he does is self-defeating. He just makes more blood. Phil Riken spoke about this well. He said, The irony of the Egyptian magician's miracle is that rather than making the plague better, they made it worse. It would have made a great deal more sense for the magicians to undo the plague by turning blood back to water, but they did not have the power to tamper with God's miracle. They could not reverse the disaster. They could only repeat it, adding plague upon plague. Thus, God bent Satan's power to his own will. Satan has power, but it's limited power. Satan has power, but it's under the control of God who can bend it to his will at any time. The great reformer Martin Luther often often suffered from the assaults of the devil, I think in unique ways. Sometimes those assaults of the devil came in the form of slander from his Roman Catholic opponents. They were vicious. Sometimes those attacks came in the form of blasphemous thoughts that he suffered with, blasphemous thoughts against God that he felt in his own mind. Uh, It's even reported that Luther once threw an ink well at the devil when he was translating the New Testament into German in Wartburg Castle. Why didn't Luther give up? Why didn't he run away? Why, Why didn't he seek a quieter life? Why did he continue to press forward with his gospel ministry for so many years? He did it because he knew that Satan's power was limited and he knew that God was sovereign. That's why. And if we want to be confident and we want to be courageous and we want to be fruitful Christians, we're not going to cower before Satan's power. We're going to fix our minds and our eyes on the sovereignty of our God who is omnipotent. What good news to know that our God is sovereign. A second thing we should take away, a second observation. Those who look to things other than God for life will be disappointed. 
Those who look to things other than God for life will be disappointed. We see that so clearly in verse 24. All of the Egyptians, they dug around the well, excuse me, they, drunk, they dug around the Nile looking for water to drink. Why? Because they could not drink water from the Nile anymore. Uh, keep in mind that for their entire lives, they had looked to the Nile as the source of their life. They worshipped the Nile. They believed that it was the Nile that made them rich and fruitful and successful. But then one day, God turns the Nile into blood, and all of their beliefs are disappointed. This thing that's supposed to give us life, this thing that is supposed to be divine, after all, is neither of those things. It's really a very powerful picture of a reality that plays out in the lives of men and women every single day. Just as the Egyptians looked to the Nile for life, so many people are looking for other things to give them life. Some try to find their life, their meaning, their identity, and money. It's very popular. If we can get just a little more, if I can have more in my bank account, if I can have nicer cars, if I can accrue a, a bigger uh, investment portfolio, well, then I'm going to have life. It's a, very, it's a very enticing delusion. Some people look for life and sex. If they can just have enough pleasurable experiences, kind of following Freud, then their life can have meaning and worth. But they end up feeling quite hollow and empty, and they leave a train wreck of relationships behind them. Some people are trying to find life in relationships. They're desperate for the approval of other people. They think if they can just get other people to like them, then they will be affirmed and they will have meaning and life. But unfortunately, no human being can affirm us enough. It just is not possible. Some, some try to find life and status and success, going to the right college, going to the right job, career field, getting that promotion, retiring at 55. I'm not sure why 55 is a golden age, but retiring at 55, they think that they will be ultimately happy. And it's true, that's the belief. And, and the thought stops right there. If I can just retire at 55 and be ultimately happy, and, and, and they don't think anything past what happens after 55. Now, they're looking for life in the things of this world, but it never works. Why? Because the things of this world were not created to satisfy the human heart. The things of this world were not made to give us life. You see, God is the author of life. Life comes from him. He's the source of our physical life. He's the source of our spiritual life. He's the source of our identity and our purpose and our meaning. You see, the things of this world were not, a not enough to satisfy us because we were made to be satisfied by God. So, friend, my question for you is, where are you looking for life this morning? What is that dream that's in front of you that keeps you going on? If I can just get that, then I'll be there. Then I'll have made it it will ultimately leave you empty. Just like the Egyptians digging in the mud beside the Nile looking for water. Friend, turn to Jesus. What does Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Trust in Jesus and find life in him. And understand, you're surrounded by a, a a room of people who are actually in their right minds who have experienced this. And they would love to talk with you about who they used to be and then they met Jesus and who they are now. And Jesus offers his life to you this morning. And we pray that you'll accept it. We're looking at these verses, verses 14 to 25. We've seen the first of 10 plagues. It's a severe judgment. It's also just the beginning. Why? Because plague after plague is going to fall 
as God pours out judgment against the gods of Egypt. And we'll see that in particular as we look at Exodus again, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray.